0: I didn't really get into brewing, though, until after I got diagnosed with celiac disease, because that was kind of a, oh, you're never going to ever have beer again for the rest of your life. Well, we'll see about
1: that. This week on Washington Beer Talk, we joined Jason of Ghostfish Brewing, Seattle's only gluten-free brewing operation. Jason clears up some of the misconceptions about gluten-free beer and tells the epic tale of the mysterious ghost fish that inspired the creation of this regional staple. This interview took place on the top floor of the brewery while preparations to make the next big beer were taking place. So mind of the pallet carts in the background. Before we get started, I'd like to thank supporters of the podcast, craftbeerclub.com. If you know someone who loves craft beer, and I suspect you do, then give the gift of beer with the craft beer of the month. Craft Beer Club finds award-winning beer from around the country and ships it straight to your door, 12 beers at a time. Support the podcast and drink beer by going to cyclingcicerone.com slash beer club to take a look. That's cyclingcicerone.com slash beer club. I'm your host, the Cycling Cicerone, and this is Washington Beer Talk.
0: I am Jason Yerger, uh, head brewer and co-founder of Ghostfish Brewing Company.
1: What got you into beer to begin with?
0: I've been a craft beer drinker since uh, probably before I was legal drinking age. Um, Really got serious about craft beer when I was maybe 22, 23. Grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area. Spent a lot of time at the original Toronado Brew Pub, cutting my teeth on stuff like Pliny the Elder, Death and Taxes. You know, really top quality stuff.
1: How about you talk about gluten-free beer a little bit?
0: I like to say it's currently at the cutting edge of the craft brewing industry. You know, we're really out in kind of unknown territory with what we're doing, but it's taken us a while to get to the state we're in now where there's actually good gluten-free beer out there. When I first got diagnosed with celiac disease, there was maybe one brand on the market. I think it was made by Anheuser-Busch and it tasted about what you'd expect a gluten-free beer from Anheuser-Busch to taste like. So it really was not very good. The, the bar was set pretty low. Uh, Right now, we are one of, I think, seven or eight dedicated gluten-free breweries in the country. Uh, When we got started, there was just one, and that was Groundbreaker down in Portland, Oregon. They were, I believe, the first dedicated in the country. Um, So we're pretty hot on their heels, as usual. But there's also um, a lot of other breweries that are doing gluten-free beer in a non-dedicated fashion. Like some of them, uh, like my friend Brian Kolbaki at Departed Souls Brewing in Jersey City, He's about 50-50, like traditional barley beers and gluten-free beers. But it's you know it's, it seems like the category grows every year at the Great American Beer Fest. There's more and more entries. And I think as more and more people realize you can make awesome beer that happens to be gluten-free, I think we're gonna see quite a bit of growth in the sector.
1: Can you talk a little bit about some of the ways to make gluten-free beer? I know you, you guys have a specific way where you don't use anything with gluten in it to make your beer, as opposed to removing the gluten or, you know, enzymatic removal some of those other tactics you want to talk a little bit about that why you chose to the way you do well there's really
0: only one way to make gluten-free beer and that is to brew with ingredients that don't have gluten anybody out there who tells you something made with barley is gluten-free is lying and um, basically out of compliance with the fda the fda does not allow anything that is made with barley no matter how it's processed to call itself gluten-free so if you see anything on a menu somewhere that says gluten-free, and then you pick up the bottle and it says crafted to remove gluten, that is not a gluten-free beer. That is a basically marketing gimmick. Treating beer with this enzyme can allow it to defeat a certain test for gluten, but think of it like cheating the test, not like actually passing it. And the FDA has refused to grant gluten-free status to these because there are lots of people who still get sick off of drinking beers made like that. I'm one of those people. Believe me when I say, if we could get away with just making beer with barley and just throwing an enzyme at it, that would be a lot easier than doing it the way we do it. But we care about health, we care about our own bodies, and we're refusing to make any compromises or cut corners.
1: You want to talk a little, before you get into how you guys really make your beer, you want to talk a little bit about why it's important to make the distinction between the actual gluten, real gluten-free beer and gluten-removed beer. for people of all the different stripes who would drink gluten-free beer?
0: Absolutely. Yeah, so well, gluten, gluten-reduced gluten beer, um, I, I hesitate to even call it that because there's no federally recognized test for gluten in beer, but we'll call it gluten-reduced for conversation's sake. The reason it's important to make that distinction is because real gluten-free beer is harder to make, more expensive to make, and so it's actually more expensive on the shelf. So what you'll see is you'll see basically beers like what we make trying to compete head to head with cheaper beers made with barley that are produced by these like large macro breweries like um, well I'm not going to name any particular ones. I think I know what you mean. (laughs) Yeah we'll just omit that from the record but you know these these are breweries that have a, a cheaper product and you know a larger market share and they're basically we're trying to compete with them and it's like Dave versus Goliath. And unfortunately, it also ends up misleading a lot of people that, you know, that might be their first experience looking for a gluten-free beer, is they have one that's not gluten-free, they think it is, and they still get sick, and so now they think all gluten-free beer is going to make them sick. I've actually seen people do this at Whole Foods, like pick up a six-pack and, you know, think, oh, gluten-free beer, and then read the fine print and say, oh, it might contain gluten? Oh, I guess I can't have gluten-free beer, I'll just have cider instead. So unfortunately, the, it's creating a lot of confusion in the marketplace that not only hurts people's health, it also hurts businesses like Ghostfish and other dedicated gluten-free breweries trying to do it the right way.
1: What kind of stuff do you do to educate people? Spiels like you just heard out of
0: me. I mean, we've, we've got talking points like this with every distributor that we work with. We have a set of talking points. We educate all their sales reps about the difference between these two types of beer so that they can educate their customers who are the retailers, the you know, bartenders and whatnot, and they can then in turn educate their customers. And hopefully we can word of mouth it, one person at a time, spread the awareness here.
1: So how do you make a gluten-free beer? As a, like I brew a lot, and I imagine most people who listen to this also brew, but it's a little mysterious anyway. Can we go into it? Sure, it's
0: actually a lot more simple and straightforward than most people think. So beer traditionally has four key ingredients, malt, hops, water, and yeast. Now, malt refers to, typically, barley malt, but you can malt pretty much anything. Malting is just a controlled sprouting process that activates certain enzymes in the grains, um, changes starches into sugars, you know, does a lot of chemical mojo to it. The way we do it is we basically just use different malted grains. So instead of barley or wheat or rye, we use millet, buckwheat, rice, sometimes even quinoa, you know, corn, pretty much any other
1: grain that doesn't contain any gluten. I thought rye was on that list of no gluten. Does it have gluten in it? It does, Dang. yeah. For people who do brew and do know how to make, they are familiar with uh, malting and uh, mashes and stuff. What are some of the tricks and the I don't know, potholes for brewing with those grains?
0: For the most part, the process is pretty much identical. There's nothing we do in our mash that's really you know mysterious, basic single infusion, 152 degrees for 60 minutes. Uh, we do add some enzymes, so that's one of the main problems is that the grains we use were not cultivated over thousands of years to be optimized for malting. So they don't naturally have a large complement of diastatic enzymes. They have almost enough, but they, they still need a little bit of help, so we use enzyme blends to help combat that. The other issue is that these grains tend to be a lot smaller and don't have a husk like barley. Like millet is tiny, it's bird seed basically. So when we grind it, it gets even finer, and the, the grist we use basically would be a traditional brewer's night, nightmare,
1: just because of how fine it is. It uh, turns into gravy.
0: Yeah, uh. pretty much. Uh, it's, um, you know, we have found ways to work around it. Using a lot of rice malt helps, because rice does have a husk, like barley, and that helps create somewhat of a filter bed. But it still means, you know, we can't do a fly sparge. We have to batch sparge because in between each running we have to cut the grain bed up remix it with the hot liquor otherwise it just basically turns into a hockey puck and we leave a bunch of ungrinced sugars in the middle of the grain bed um, which actually we had to learn this the hard way back in our first like four or five batches we were doing it fly sparging and wondering why we were only getting like 25 percent efficiency <laughs> so thankfully we figured that out in only five batches but that is probably the other Big challenge. I guess the last one, which is more challenge for us as a commercial brewery than a home brewer, is price. So the grains we use, uh, because they're such niche products made by small producers, really you know, a lot of hands-on malting and whatnot, they run about five to eight times the price of barley. So that is a, a pretty big handicap in terms of our profit margin, because we don't want to charge five to eight times as much for the beer. Like, who's going to come into a brewery and pay? you know, 30 bucks for a pint, right? So um, we've had to get pretty creative with how we brew and how we operate as a business to keep our margins in a reasonable territory.
1: Tell me some of the some of the tricks you're using. Obviously, or it seems to me like you're doing a pretty good job of running a business despite having much lower margins. Oh, yeah. Um, talk a little bit about it. Well, for one, we
0: package in aluminum cans primarily, which are quite a bit cheaper than bottles. Um, a lot higher upfront cost because you got to order them a truckload at a time, but the cost per can is quite a bit cheaper. So that helps. We also are just judicious about the styles we choose to make. Like if you look at our lineup, you're not gonna see a lot of dark beers in there because the dark gluten-free malts are like the most expensive. I mean, we're talking like three, four bucks a pound. So, you know, we focus on lighter beers like our Meter Shower Blonde Ale, our Shrouded Summit Belgian White. Those are both four and a half, five percent ABV, light color and very moderately hopped modestly hopped i should say for the hoppier beers you know we have to take a slightly different path like our grapefruit ipa has tons of hops in it but we actually don't use malt in that one we use what was originally the only thing you could use to make gluten free beer back in the day, which is sorghum syrup. We also use a blend of rice syrup, candy syrup, and tapioca maltodextrin in that, which you can see if you read the ingredients on the can. The syrups are a little bit cheaper than the malt. They're still more expensive than barley, so it's not like we're really saving a lot of money there, but it's enough to keep our margin in line so we can just hop the crap out of the beer.
1: Do you make any special considerations for the hops you use? Do you use particular ones that Pair nicely with those grains.
0: Oh sure, yeah. I mean, grains. All grains have their own unique flavors, and you know, hops can sort of fight or uh, synergize with those. You know, we find with with millet, like some of the specialty millet malts, we get like the Vienna millet. Actually, has sort of like a natural already kind of tropical fruit fruit flavor to it. So you know, picking hops that kind of accentuate that that are, you know, kind of on the more citrusy, tropical end, you know, really kind of helps bring those characteristics out. Uh, with our grapefruit IPA, which, you know, is, like I said, is made with sorghum, sorghum really amplifies the citrus characteristics of hops, like Cascade, Columbus, you know, the typical sea hops. That's why it's such a great base for a citrus IPA, because it naturally enhances those citrus flavors, and if you're going for a big grapefruit wallop,
1: then that's like one of the best bases you can use. Let's move back. Let's change gears. How about you tell the story of like, Ghostfish, just from the beginning to end, you know, when you, so from where you started, when you decided you wanted to do this, how you got your friends on board, you know, your other <laughs> co-founders, stuff like that. Give me the whole story.
0: Yeah, it's, uh, it's a great story. It's always hard to tell because it's not exactly linear. Um, there's really kind of two separate parallel threads that were happening at the same time that eventually wove together to create the brewery as it exists today. So my own thread was independent of my two co-founders. I basically just got really into brewing gluten-free beer as a home brewer because I love beer and that was the only way I could get decent beer at the time. I was in grad school at the time and really not feeling what I was you know, getting my degree in. I was just spending way more time brewing than studying. And by the time I was ready to graduate, I'm like, I don't want to go into this career. I want to start a brewery. But unfortunately, well, well, maybe not so unfortunately, but from my perspective, I didn't have enough business experience. I didn't have enough startup capital. I didn't really know anything about running a business or starting a brewery. So bookmark that. While I was learning the arts of gluten-free home brewing, my two partners, Brian Thiel and Randy Schrader, were also scheming about opening a brewery. And they were originally not gonna do a gluten-free brewery. Brian's wife Amber uh, has celiac disease like me and the result of that is that Brian kind of got first-hand experience of how bad the gluten-free beer on the market was at the time. Between him and Randy both very health-conscious people kind of decided that rather than being one one more of the thousands of new craft breweries starting up with nothing really to distinguish them that they were gonna take a stab at making gluten-free beer because that's a very underserved niche even today. Uh, the one problem was they couldn't figure out how to make it taste good. You know, they did a bunch of homebrewing experiments of their own, but couldn't really kind of hit the marks they were trying to hit. Now, I'm kind of a dork, if you haven't picked up on that yet. I spent a lot of time on the internet, and while I was doing my gluten-free homebrewing, I was blogging about it. So Brian and Randy sort of stumbled across my blog, and were like, hey, this guy seems like he knows what he's talking Do about. Do you still
1: run that blog? No. No. I, uh,
0: it would... Uh, it would be nothing more than shameless self-promotion of what we're doing here. <laughs> However, I do, I, I do still have a lot of love and a lot of connections with the homebrew community. But in any case, they found my blog and... Uh, they're really milking those pallet jacks today. They? Yeah, they really are. <laughs> um, okay. <laughs> the, they decided to kind of make a Hail Mary and just offer me a job. And I thought, well, what the hell? I just graduated. I don't want to go into that career path. And I get this mysterious email out of the blue saying, hey, you want to move to Seattle and start this brewery with us? So, of course, I did what any madman would do, and I just took the opportunity and ran with it. Pulled my startup capital with theirs, and one thing led to another, and here we are.
1: So, you've been homebrewing gluten free beer for a while, and then you now are one of, like you said, the eighth gluten-free breweries, or eight or so, whatever gluten-free breweries, you know, in America, you probably are pushing the envelope a lot, you're not a, you don't have a lot of resources to go to that say this is how you make gluten-free beer, so you're kind of the guy, like you're one of the, like one of the people who really knows the most. (laughs) What kind of, um, I don't know, maybe, I don't know, speak to that a little bit.
0: Sure, yeah, Um, I mean we definitely are constantly pushing the boundaries of beer in various different ways, There's a lot of proprietary research we've had to do, but one of the things that we love about the craft brewing community is just the openness, the inclusiveness, the wanting to share. So we don't regard what we're doing as having a lot of trade secrets. In fact, we openly welcome other people trying to start up gluten-free breweries to come in to learn everything about how we do it and maybe see if they can come up with ways to do it better. Um, We actually have an intern in right now who's working on starting up a gluten-free brewery in Southern California. We've got another one coming in next week from Oklahoma. Um, We've had people in from North Carolina, from Australia, from Colorado. You know, we basically just like throw our arms wide open and say, yeah, we may be the ones kind of like blazing the trail here, but we don't want to do this alone and we don't want to hoard what we've discovered. Because it's really, I mean this is science and science rests on things like peer review and repeatability and so you know we really try to extend as much as we can what we've learned and and hopefully get get back a little bit too. I, I will tell you though it uh, we have in the past run into some rather unique issues like things like our fermentation times taking longer than expected and the process to troubleshoot that has been something i don't think hardly any brewery ever has to go through like we we at one point were working with three different companies like the yeast manufacturer grain manufacturer and um, uh, a company that makes yeast nutrients to try to figure out we also were getting copious lab analysis like sugar spectrum results micronutrient levels macronutrient levels all this stuff just to figure out why the heck does it take this beer 14 days to finish we know we can get it to finish in nine, we just gotta figure out what it is. And so the amount of just straight science we've had to do that your average brewery never has to deal with because they're following uh, thousands of years of tradition, uh, it really makes this for an interesting job. What did the solution end up being to that? Just dialing in the right blend of nutrients and the right proportions, you know, getting enough free amino nitrogen, enough zinc, dialing in the sugar spectrum, not having too much maltotriose, you know, getting enough glucose and maltose, stuff like that. It was really, um, when we finally hit it, it was like, release the balloons. We finally got this beer down to like nine days and that means we can really pump it
1: out this summer. How big is this brewery? How many, like, how many barrels per year? How many people?
0: We have been growing quite fast. Our first year we produced about 660 barrels Uh, More than doubled that the second year to 1330. About 2100 was last year. We're on track for about 3500 this year, knock on wood. As far as what our ceiling is in production capacity, it's probably around four to five thousand a year, depending on how much more we can fine-tune these processes. Uh, We have a 15 barrel brew house. Our cellar has three 60 barrel fermentation tanks, four 30 barrel tanks, um, and two 15s, one fermentation, one bright. So it allows us in a good month, to pump out around 350, 400 barrels, if we're really like flogging ourselves. Personnel wise, I think our total staff is somewhere in the neighborhood of 20 to 25 employees. That includes a lot of part-timers, brand ambassadors, and you know, other parts of the state and other states in the country. Production crew includes myself, full-time production manager, full-time shift brewer, full-time sellerman, and a part-time basically like do-everything kind of guy He's kind of more shipping logistics right now, but he been learning brew, learning a seller, all that good stuff. Bar has, I don't know, probably somewhere in the neighborhood of 10 or 11 employees. Then we've got admin staff. It's a, It's a pretty big family for only being like three years old.
1: having a place of this size and starting off like this, having three three years is a short time to grow. Where'd all that come from? where all the, like...
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, it depends on what you mean by it. I mean, um, we, we've we really been wowed by the market demand for our product. It, it kind of seems like as much beer as we can make, people will buy it, so just, you know, shepherding that so we're actually managing expectations properly it's been a wild ride i will tell you that our first couple of summers just took us totally off guard we were just scrambling to keep up with it but you know we've been trying to grow as as quickly as we can without causing any major problems it's definitely been expensive and has caused some real you know cash flow constriction from time to time, but this is looking like a banner year for us. And I'm, at this point, I'm starting to think, okay, when can we open facility number two?
1: Okay, so you guys are feeling confident about your expansion, like you're going to continue growing?
0: Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, we just um, we just transitioned from working with a few smaller Washington distributors to Columbia Distributing, who is I think one of the top six largest distributors in the in the country, and they were. Very eager to take us on. I mean, they, they really pushed hard to bring us into the fold, and it wasn't an easy decision to make because we really loved the distributors we've been working with before, but we feel like these, these guys really have the firepower to take us to the next level.
1: I'd like to ask that question uh, because a lot of brewers I talk to are basically planning on staying at the local level. They are brewers in Ballard, or you know uh, that area, and that is that's basically That's a lot of times that's all you can do. You kind of brew there, and then you're paying rent in Ballard, and that's kind of the yeah. level you're hoping to stay at. Going back to um, distribution and stuff like that, uh, one of the things that lots of brewers need to worry about is how do they actually get shelf space, and that's basically impossible with so many breweries. It's really really hard. I imagine you don't like you, you actually were talking about this a little bit. You don't have a problem with that really because you got this yeah. niche product that everyone needs. I don't even want to talk about that at all.
0: It's it's a double-edged sword for us, right? Because on the one hand, we don't have a lot of competition, and in Seattle we don't have any local competition. So if you want a Seattle-made gluten-free beer, it's us. And so that opens a lot of doors for us. On the other hand, there's the stigma behind gluten-free because you know a lot of people see it as this health fad that's, you know, kind of BS, and for a lot of people it is, people who go for, you know, non- medical reasons uh, that's a whole rant that I won't get into but yeah
1: I'm you really on that one
0: but there is you know because there was so much bad gluten-free beer out there and because gluten-free products in general tend to be inferior from a, a taste standpoint you know people find out oh they're gluten-free oh, I'm not gonna take that seriously it probably sucks um, you know a great case study for this is that the difference we get in judging results when we're judged in the gluten-free category versus just a regular category. For instance, our grapefruit IPA, right? It's, it's taken bronze at the GABF twice in the gluten-free category, which isn't saying much. Okay, bronze in the gluten-free category, uh, great. Well, we submitted it to Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine just as an IPA for this, you know, best IPAs in America article they were writing. So the people tasting it, writing the article, had no idea it was gluten-free. We got 93 points. You know what else got 93 points? Pliny the Elder. You know we outscored some of my favorite IPAs and I was just boggled by this and reading the tasting notes on it they were talking about like oh yes I can taste the biscuit malt and the caramel malt and I'm like okay I have a lot less respect for you BJCP judges now because you're drinking a beer made with no malt and you're tasting these things that aren't there. But at the same time it just it just goes to show that perception and and bias is like a big deal like if people are drinking something they know it's gluten-free they're going to be a lot less charitable to it than if they're just drinking it and taking it on its own merits so like i said
1: double-edged sword that's a really interesting perspective Uh, that's one of the things that i've always sort of known to be true is that really it's hard to judge beer because 90 percent of the flavor comes from how much fun you're having right then right
0: exactly
1: (laughs) I am guilty of the same thing. I look at gluten-free and I absolutely think, eh, you, yeah. know? Um, you know, like, oh, I don't need to make that sacrifice and drink this beer. I mean, I have drank a ton of your beer and I love it, but it took me a second to try it for the first time and that's just how that is. Absolutely. What are the core, ber- uh, the core beers you have on production? So, yeah, we've got right now
0: in cans year-round, we have our Kickstep IPA which is actually um, a project that benefits the Mountaineers, which is a local non-profit mountain uh, park stewardship kind of deal. Um, We also have Meteor Shower Blonde, Grapefruit IPA, Vanishing Point Pale Ale, and Shrouded Summit Belgian White, so that's five year-round beers and cans. Our Peak Buster Double IPAs in 22-ounce bottles, although that is making a transition to non-year-round status. So we feel like we'd like to turn it into maybe a rotating double IPA because um, that would be a lot more fun. Mm-hmm. But other than that, we have seasonals that come out pretty much every couple of months.
1: Talk about this, maybe talk about this area a little bit. So you're down here, you're south of town. Is this Soto or Georgetown? This is Soto. Okay. Okay. Um,
0: it's kind of like Georgetown's a few blocks away, I think. Okay. I'm not sure where the
1: official boundary
0: is, but yeah, this is a great place to have a brewery. It's kind of the last of Seattle's real industrial spaces. Not that that really means we're saving all that much on rent. It's still Seattle. But, you know, this this area is so, I mean, we've got Westland Distilling across the street. We've got Two Beers and Seattle Cider Company just down the way's a little bit. Sea Pine just a few blocks away, up the street, we've got you know pyramid and Legion fields. Then we've got all the pot shops that have been springing up. Like this is kind of like the green light district now, it seems like. But you know, there's really there's not a lot of other stuff in the area other than you know people just working. So it is it's kind of becoming, and, and we're really trying to help create Soto as a sort of destination for craft beer, for craft spirits, just craft in general but it's you know it poses its challenges you know we get some through traffic for the stadiums and all that but it's not like we've got people living here we're not really anybody's neighborhood pub so we really have to work on having a value added place where people can come you know eat spend time with their families you know we're dog friendly we're kid friendly we've got an awesome restaurant that you know caters to all kinds of different dietary restrictions and yet most people who come in here don't realize it's at all designed that way it's just good food good beer that a lot of people don't even realize it's gluten-free
1: <laughs> you want to talk about the food at all the brew pub side do you work with them often or are you yeah no i mean
0: uh that's most of the time that i eat out it's right here because i feel like this is the best food in seattle and you know we've we've worked really hard to bring in the right talent you know our the, the chef in our kitchen uh joshua beckham he is just a wizard when it comes to his creations and he's also very methodical very business-minded and just a great person to work with he's done an awesome job at just assembling a really strong cohesive team in the kitchen that works really well with our front of the house staff but you know he's been able to do things like create like fish and chips that rival some of the best fish and chips you've ever had except they're gluten-free you know and he's always coming up with like funky new dishes and he's you know kind of into the molecular gastronomy thing and you know I just we're we're kind of like two peas in a pod just being total dorks about our respective crafts. So I, I love the guy, I love working with him. I love what he's created out of the kitchen. And really that more than anything is really helping to drive our you know our growth here in in the tap room. Because we are kind of this odd mix of production brewery and brew pub. Which you know, it's always a fine balance to strike. But um, you know, my heart's probably more in the brewpub side of things because that's where you know it's really just
1: like art and
0: craft and just you know letting your creativity flow. It's really something special.
1: You're talking about the differences between the brewpub side and the production side. What are some of those?
0: They both have their own different pressures, and the pressures are pretty distinct. Running a brew pub is really all about creating constant streams of new experiences to keep people coming in. You know, obviously you've got to have your standbys, your flagships that people know they can get, but you know, we're always trying to find new exciting things to do to get people in the door. Running a production facility, you want to do the opposite of that. You know, you want to have a few core brands that you just pump the heck out of and just like it's a constant stream flowing out the door of like maybe three or four core brands. So finding ways to balance this just massive growth and production of a few of our core brands while keeping the fun, funky, experimental nature of just producing these little fifteen barrel batches one at a time that we're never gonna make again. Well, maybe we might make some of them again if they're really good, but it's um it's an interesting tension. Seattle really is about the local brew pubs, you know, neighborhoods, like that's like you said, like They're in Ballard. That's where they're going to be. And that's, you know, this is their neighborhood and they're going to stay there. You know, because there's so little good gluten-free beer out there, we feel like we have an opportunity and even a duty to seize as much of that market as we can, get good beer back into the hands of people with gluten issues, just because so much of the country, there's nothing for beer lovers with celiac disease to drink. So we have this mission of just getting out there as far and wide as possible, but we also don't want to lose that local hyper-local Seattle roots kind of feel.
1: I guess speaking to growth and just beginning becoming really big What happens most of the time these days is a brewer gets big enough to get noticed nationally Or (laughs) even just regionally and then I get bought by ABM bev. Yeah, something I like to ask all the brewers What kind of what do you think about that if you guys are the next brewery to get, you know singled out by ABM bev And say oh, we need a better gluten-free line. Yeah, what might happen? Well, you know for us?
0: we're in kind of a unique situation, you know, because on the one hand, yeah, AB and Bev is like the evil empire, and, you know, their, their name is almost like Lord Voldemort. It's among, you know, craft brewers. On the other hand, they have such deep pockets and such a tremendous wealth of resources. You know, what we do, it's because it's so difficult, it's so expensive and the margins are so thin, in order to, to grow and to really dominate the market the way we want to and to get our beer as far and wide as possible, it would be it would be a really, you know, soul-searching dilemma to be put in if, if their execs knocked on the door the, ne- the next day and, "All right, we want to cut you a check for 6 million dollars." <laughs> you know, wow, we could brew and we could we could build such an awesome facility for that. We could, you know, take the whole western half of the country where there's no gluten-free beer at all and I don't know, it would it would be tough. It would definitely be tough. Especially, you know, when we've been laboring at this for I mean, we've been working on it for five years. We've only been open for a little over three, and, yeah, we're not exactly rolling in the dough yet. <laughs> so, I don't know. I, I I like to say it would be a hard choice. We wouldn't definitely say no. We wouldn't definitely say yes. I think what we'd rather have happen is one of the larger regional craft breweries come a You know, like somebody like a Dogfish Head, a Sierra Nevada Boston Beer Company. I don't know, like some of these big players who really started the craft beer revolution and now are so firmly
1: established, that would be a much easier decision to make. What's your favorite beer? The favorite one that you make here at Ghost
0: That would definitely be our Meteor Shower Blonde Ale. Now it's not our most glamorous beer, it's not our most extreme beer, it's kind of the opposite of that really, but it's a ton of fun to brew and it really showcases the unique character of our grains it's a very simple grain bill. It's pale millet, Vienna millet, biscuit rice malt, and you know, just a mild hopping with German Perla hops. But I can just drink that beer all day long. Uh, you know, it's at four and a half percent. It's really easy to drink, um, and it's it's just. I mean, there's no sharp edges to it. There's nothing. Anytime I drink it, I'm like, I can't see where to improve this beer per se. I'm just you know really happy with how it turned out. I'm not inclined to mess with the recipe at all. And, You know, I just... Yeah, there might be more glamorous beers we make, like our Peak Buster Double IPA. Amazing beer, but at 9.5% and 95 IBUs, it's kind of a one-and-done kind of thing. You know, so, yeah, I'd say Meteor Shower.
1: What is your favorite beer of all time? Ooh. Harder question. Ooh, Possibly impossible.
0: Yeah. Well, nothing's impossible, but um, I will tell you... Could probably narrow it down to a couple. And it's probably not going to be what you'd expect from a Northwest beer guy. It's, uh, none of them are IPAs. The beers I drank the most of when I could, could still drink barley beers were probably Young's Chocolate Stout, d- Double Chocolate Stout, just because it's so so decadent, and, and Rogue's Hazelnut Brown Nectar. Those are, those are two beers that are just so perfectly balanced. But they're like sweet, they're malty, and they've got just a little something special character to it. I guess I feel like I should pick an IPA in there, too, just because this is Seattle. So I would say probably my favorite IPA of all time, i got to go with the Lagunitas IPA. Just their original flagship IPA. Is that
1: the Lil' Something or Lil' Something Something? Nope, something it's just
0: those. IPA. It's just so, so well-balanced, you know. I mean that, they're just known for the hop overkill, but I feel like that beer, more than anything else they make, is just like the perfect balance of, of malt and hops, and I just love the hop character they got out of it. Like, I'm like, like always thinking like, how could I mimic that gluten-free, you know. Like, I'm sure if I was still a homebrewer, I'd be trying to come up with a clone recipe for it. Maybe I already would have, who knows. (laughs) Different priorities.
1: Who's that dog over there?
0: (laughs) That's Kai. That's Randy's golden retriever. Although half the people who meet him think he's like part setter or something like that. He is very definitely a golden. Uh, He's a real sweetheart. He's um, also the... uh, the label for our spring seasonal, the Kai Dog Amber Ale. One of my favorite label designs we have too. is him in a meadow of flowers. <laughs> really, yeah. Our our little uh, brew dog. Oh, so cute. Matches the floor too. I know. We step on him way more than we'd like to admit. Poor oh. guy. We really should repaint the floor so we stand down a little more against it.
1: Oh, uh, one of my favorite ghost fish stories is the origin of your name. I initially thought that it was. You know what? I'll just let you. Can you talk about the name? Absolutely.
0: So, um, this is a common misconception that the G and the F from Ghost Fish correspond to the G and the F in gluten-free. But the name actually predates the decision that Brian and Randy made to do a gluten-free brewery. They were just searching for a good catchy name and having not a whole lot of luck until Brian had this experience. I'll try to keep the story in the abridged version, but Brian used to live in Browns Point, Tacoma in a beach house right on the water. Like, literally, you could fish out of his living room window. One night, he uh, was hanging out with an old buddy of his and they were out on the, on the patio and Brian went inside to check on something and came back out and his buddy was totally spooked. White as a sheet. Like, Brian, I saw this thing in the water. It was, like, glowing. And Of course, Brian thought he was getting punked or whatever and you know, didn't believe it and then a bit later that night, Brian sees it too. It's a bobbing, glowing things. You know, probably some kind of like bioluminescent dinoflagellates or something with like a sea otter or a fish or something. Who knows? Either way, he called it a ghost fish. It's like, it's like a ghost fish. And when he told Randy that story, they were both like, Ghost Fish Brewing Company. <laughs> and and it, you know, that was actually one of the things that hooked me in the, in the beginning when they messaged me they already had the name and if it had been some like stupid goofy name I probably wouldn't have thought twice about it. like oh, I'm I'm not going to you know work for some like I don't know sp- spare tire brewing company or something like that like that's dorky but ghostfish that's that's got some teeth to it that's got a little bit of an edge
1: is the ghostfish around has he making? has he made any more appearances recently
0: well yeah especially after you've had three or four pints <laughs> yeah, he really likes to come out when nobody's going to believe the story about him. Thank you so much, Jason. That was awesome. My pleasure. I, I always love talking about myself, right? Who does not <laughs> Thanks for the opportunity. Absolutely.
1: All right, let's go get a beer. Yeah. Have you heard of Gigantic Bicycle Fest yet? If you like art, camping, music, bikes, and beer—or really any combo of those things—all for charity—then this is for you. August 24th to 26th in Snoqualmie, Washington. Sign up on GiganticBicycleFest.org, and for half off your weekend pass, you use promo code Beer. GiganticBicycleFest.org, promo code Beer. See you there of Washington Beer Talk, then go to cyclingcicerone.com. They're all up there. You can also find them wherever you get your podcasts, like Stitcher, Google Play, and Apple Podcasts. Do you know a brewery that wants to be on Washington Beer Talk? Then go to cyclingcicerone.com and contact me. We'll talk. If you're enjoying the podcast, then please leave a rating. Go back to Facebook and comment and like. The best way to support the Cycling Cicerone is to get on your bike and drink. Please bike and drink responsibly.